With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that from the foundations of the earth that you have had a plan. And as we look at that this morning, I pray, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that desire to understand what you have for each of us individually as we apply your word to our lives. And so we commit this time unto you. Pray you'd be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you were here, we talked about a, sort of a Christmas message, talked about Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting how the Spirit works. I was studying this morning and saw how perfectly that weaves into what we're talking about this morning as we get into John chapter 3, uh, continuing our studies in the gospel according to John. Uh, took us uh, nearly three months to get through two chapters, kind of a record for me on slow, but um, there's just a lot of richness there that we don't want to miss. We'll get as far as we can this morning in chapter three. Don't know how far that'll be, uh, but uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in here as we talk about the new birth. And uh, with it being a new year, I think it's significant because we as a church, I'll tell you, my prayer is that we as a church could uh, be in a place or a posture of reaching outward, not inward. Uh, sometimes churches that have been around for a long time or for a while can tend to become inward drawn. And my prayer is that we could just reach outward in our community. Je Jesus says to, to fulfill the Great Commission, both in Jerusalem, which is our community, and Judea, which is the surrounding area, the, the, perhaps the sphere of influence we have in our families and extended families. And then in Samaria, he says, don't forget about the bad neighborhood and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we embrace the year ahead uh, as a body, my prayer is that we will uh, be focused and energized with actually with the strength of God to be able to do that, to fulfill that which he's put before us to do. So um, in John chapter three, well, backing up, in John chapter two, remember Jesus performed this miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, up in the northern part of the, the country. And then he came down to Jerusalem to attend the feast of the Passover. And when he got into the temple commons there, as he went into the temple, he saw all the, the stuff that was going on. We talked about Annas' Bazaar, where uh, the high priest and all of his crooked cronies, so to speak, uh, they had actually turned the Passover and the feasts of Israel into a business. And they were doing business there in the court of the Gentiles, actually in the temple complex itself. And Jesus turned over the, the tables and he took a, and he made a whip out of uh, cords, it says, out of rope. And, and he just began to say, just don't do this. He was grieved and he was angry with a righteous indignation because they had turned God's house into a house of merchandise. And so it says that he continued there at the feast and he evidently was doing miracles, signs. We looked at that. A sign is not an end unto itself, but it always points to something. And so as he's doing these signs, it was to point to the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he was not just the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And we see those terms used interchangeably. We'll look at the Son of Man this morning as we go through the text here in John chapter 3. So with that being the case, it says at the end of chapter 2 that the people were believing in him because they saw the signs. And he knew that that was not a full-blown kind of a faith. It wasn't something that was going to produce. It would produce followers, but it wouldn't produce salvation. 
And so he was attracting attention. He was getting a lot of attention with the crowds. He was getting a lot of attention with uh, what he did in the temple. I mean, that was a bold thing to do. And so now here in John chapter 3, Jesus receives a visitor. And so as we look at this in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, Nicodemus, I, I've, I don't know if you guys remember Nickelodeon on TV. I always call this story Nick at Night. <laughs> and uh, he comes to Jesus at night. And it's the only time I get to use that joke. So, um, but seriously, he comes to Jesus. And he's, I want to look at four things about Nicodemus. As we get into the text here, I want to sort of color in the background about this guy because it's important as we look at the interaction that he has with Jesus that we know something about him. So the first thing is that he was evidently a wealthy man. In John uh, chapter 19, we see that when they were going to bury Jesus, that Nicodemus shows up with a hundred pounds of spices, of costly aloes and uh, myrrh and all that. And so that's not something that a commoner would be able to afford at all. I mean, a hundred pounds of spices was a big deal, but he wanted to honor the Lord in his burial. And so that's something that he does. So the first thing we look at is he's probably a wealthy, well-connected guy. He was probably from a prominent family in Israel. Uh, some other things that are written by Josephus and I'm not going to go into detail there. And some other accounts that they, they tell us that he was probably uh, very well connected, that his son was one of the guys that was going to be a uh, central figure in the rebellion that would happen later on uh, and, and when the Romans and the, the Jews would clash and, and he would be somebody who would, would be involved in that. So, uh, but the first thing that we see is that he's wealthy, he's well connected, he's well healed. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a big guy. He, he's a very well-known and very influential man in Israel. The second is he's a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees, I'm going to read something to you here, but the Pharisees were an interesting bunch. There were about 6,000 of them in Israel, and they were zealots. They were given, now going back into the Maccabean period, which is the 400 years between the time that Malachi prophesied and John the Baptist showed up, there were 400 years where God was quiet. They were the quiet years, but that doesn't mean that nothing was going on. It just means that he wasn't speaking through a prophet. And during the Maccabean revolt, the Maccabean period, where there was this bad dude, he, made, he was sort of a type for the Antichrist, and he, he looked like Hitler in that sense. He was a very anti-Semitic man by the name Antiochus Epiphanes, and he just punished the Jews. And uh, when the Jews rose up and they revolted in the Maccabean revolt, this party called the Pharisees, this religious sect called the Pharisees was born. And they were a right on, on fire outpouring of God in the Old Testament. And they were standing up for what was right. They wanted to know what God's law had to say. They wanted to know and to connect with God in such a way that they were, they were not compromising at all. The thing is, and it's what something, it's interesting, guys, what happens through church history, if you have been a student, I, I'm, I'm not a, a deep student of church history, but I do know enough about it to know that there are patterns. And when Jesus talks about uh, the wineskins, he says, you know, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins because new wine ferments. And when it ferments, it will start to bloat that wineskin. And if it's an old wineskin, kind of crusty, kind of old, it'll burst the wineskin. And so what he's implying in that is that 
the new wine of, of what his work is, he pours into new wineskins because they're pliable and they expand with the work. And so what happens in church history is that God pours out his spirit in a significant way and he does this beautiful work and then man gets in there and starts to fix it. You ever heard, yeah, don't try to fix something that works? We're really good at that. And so slowly, because man begins to legislate the things of God and move further away from God, that thing starts to harden up. And so at, at one point, the Lord just he, just, he bails on it, and he says, I'm going to start a new work. Well, what was happening here with the Pharisees was they had begun to harden up. And uh, I want to read this to you. It says that in their zeal, they began to interpret the commandments of God. And in many ways, the Pharisees were the best people in the whole country. It says that they were what was known as a chabura or a brotherhood. Now, that's true. They were a select few. And in, in Nicodemus's day, they had the top, the cream of the crop, which was uh, the Sanhedrin. We'll talk about that in a minute. They entered into this brotherhood by taking a pledge in front of three witnesses that would spend, they would spend their lives observing every detail of the scribal law. You hear about the scribes and the Pharisees? We'll talk about that in the division there. Uh, to the Jews, the law was the most sacred thing in all the world, that being the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books of Moses were the core of the Old Testament law. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the five books and then the prophets being the guys that God raised up to speak in portions and ways to the nation of Israel and to the world. And so, see, they believed that that law was the perfect word of God. To add one word or to take away one word from it was a deadly sin. Now, if the law is the perfect and complete word of God, that must mean that it contained everything that anyone needed to know for living the living of a good life, if not explicitly, then implicitly, if not expressed, then implied, is what he's saying. If it was not there in so many words, it must be possible to deduce it. This is where they got off. This is where they got into this whole spiral to where they started reducing the things of God. The law, as it stood, consisted of great, whole, wide, noble principles which people had to work out for themselves. But for the later Jews, that was not enough. They said the law is complete. It contains everything necessary for the living of a good life. Therefore, in the law, there must be a regulation to govern every possible incident in every possible moment for every possible individual. So they started to bake the law, basically. Put it in the oven, see what pops out. So they set out to extract from the great principles of the law an infinite number of rules and regulations to govern, govern every conceivable situation in life. In other words, they changed the law of the great principles into the legalism of bylaws and regulations. Now, here's an example. And again, I'm spending some time on this because I want you to understand this isn't just Nicodemus's mindset, but this is the Jews. Remember we talked about when you see the word Jews in the Gospel of John, it means the religious leaders, okay? This is the prevailing mindset that these guys had. And we have to understand that to understand why they came against Jesus to the degree that they did. The best example of what they did is to be seen in the Sabbath law. In the Bible itself, we're simply told that we must remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and that on that day, no work can be done, either by a man or by his servants or his beasts, his animals. 
Uh, not content with that, the later Jews spent hour after hour and generation after generation defining what work is and listing the things that may and may not be done on the Sabbath day. I mentioned before, when my wife and I were in Israel, you just, you, if you had to catch an elevator on Saturday, forget it. They have one elevator in the whole hotel and it's called the Sabbath elevator because it automatically stops at every floor so you don't have to push a button because that's work and it was forbidden. Yeah, and so it, it says the, the Mishnah is the codified scribal law. So the scribes would sit there and they'd figure out all these technicalities and these technical details and then the Mishnah was the way that they codified it, but the way they wrote it down. The scribes would write these things out. The scribes spent their lives working out the rules and the regulations, and in the Mishnah, the section of the Sabbath extends to no fewer than 24 chapters. The Talmud is the explanatory commentary on the Mishnah. So now, they're heaping lists of obedience on top of lists of obedience. And this is what had happened from the time of the Maccabean Revolt, when these guys started out right on, on fire for God, and now they're, they're distilling the things of God down to just endless rules and regulations. And then, as if that wasn't enough, they write books on the rules and regulations and they write books on the books on the rules and regulations. Because it was getting that exactly, that ridiculous, and all of this is thinking that they're being pleasing to God. Think about it. There's some weird things that go out there, on a, out there in the name of God, in the name of religion. And, and I mean, I've been involved in some when I was a younger man, when I grew up in a, a weird group. And, and, and I don't even need to go there. But I mean, you've got to be sure that there's a standard. And if that standard isn't the word of God, we are subject to all kinds of weird things. And I mean the word of God in context, the way that it was intended to be communicated to us, not this kind of interpretation. It says the Jerusalem Talmud, the section complaining, uh, explaining the Sabbath, was about 64 and a half columns, and in the Babylonian Talmud, it was 156 double folio pages. And we're told about a rabbi who spent two and a half years in studying one of the 24 chapters of the Mishnah. The king, uh, or this kind of thing that they did was this, to tie a knot on the Sabbath was to work, but the knot had to be defined. The following are the knots, the making of which renders a man guilty. The knot of camel drivers, watch out camel drivers, and that of sailors. And as one is guilty by reason of tying them, so he's also guilty for untying them. On the other hand, knots which could be tied or untied with one hand were legal. So if you could do it with one hand, it's okay. Further, a woman may tie up a slit in her shift and the strings of her cap and those of her girdle, the straps of shoes and sandals or the skins of wine and oil. Now, look at what happened. Suppose a man wished to let down a bucket into a well and draw water out on the Sabbath day. He couldn't tie a rope to it because the knot on the rope was illegal on the Sabbath. But he could tie it to a woman's girdle and let it down for the knot in a girdle was quite legal. That was the kind of thing which the scribes and the Pharisees, was, it was a matter of life and death to these guys. It, it, Jesus said, you know what? You tie up heavy loads for men. You, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, such as mercy and compassion, justice. I mean, when he gets on these guys, there's a good reason for it. They actually thought they were serving God and doing this. 
That's the mindset that Nicodemus has when he comes to Jesus, okay? He is a Pharisee. He has devoted his life to these infinitely detailed regulations concerning what is obedience to God and what is not. The third thing we see about Nicodemus is that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. It was a 70-member council in the first century that was governed by Rome. Now, prior to Rome, they governed the country, okay? It was the governing body. It was the Supreme Court, in that sense, of Israel, all right? Now, it's from a Greek word called synedrion, and it means those sitting, okay? So we talk about a, a Supreme Court justice. He's a sitting justice. That's where that comes from. It's, it's, it means those men sitting in power or authority. And they had... Now, under Rome, they had religious authority, but they didn't have civil authority to adjudicate cases there. But when they arrested Jesus, remember, it was because they were accusing him of being a false prophet. They were accusing him of blasphemy for setting himself up to be God, which he was. And yet they had authority, and that's how they had authority with Pilate to do what they did. So again, he is... He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of this 70-member council that oversees the Jews, not just in Israel, but the Jews worldwide. Because they were in Jerusalem. That was the, that was the pinnacle of Judaism in those days, as it is today. And they governed the actions of Jews all over the known world. The fourth thing we see about Nicodemus, and I want to be kind to him here, because you know, it says when he came to Jesus at night, there are many that say, well, it's because he was sneaking around, didn't want to get caught by his contemporaries and all that. And that might be true. However, this guy had been, he'd seen Jesus mixing it up. I mean, he was probably in the temple complex when Jesus was doing what he did just a few days before. And Nicodemus was curious. He's, you know, he sees this guy, turning over the tables. I mean, think about it. He has devoted his life to things considered holy and sacred to God. And he, as opposed to a lot of his contemporaries, had a heart for God. I mean, that's evidenced in the things we see about his life. And he sees that, like when Jesus turns over the tables, he's thinking, you know what? That's needed to be done for a long, long time. And, and have you ever felt that when you see that there's justice done, it's like, yes. That has needed to happen. That's needed to come about. And I believe that's his mindset. I believe that's what's driving him. And he's not coming to Jesus at night because he wants to sneak around. Remember, this is Passover season. And in Passover season, these guys were busy. Jesus would be teaching in the temple commons every day. And so would Nicodemus. I mean, he was a ruler. He was a leader of the Jews. He would be teaching as a Pharisee. He would be a teacher. He was, as Jesus says, the teacher of Israel. And so I believe that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, it's just because he wants an audience with him one-on-one. -on -one. And the only time he's going to get it is after hours, so to speak. So I don't think it's a big complicated deal, and I don't want to sit here and indict Nicodemus because he takes the initiative because he sees there's something different about this rabbi from Galilee. And, and he is a defender of Jesus. In John 7, uh, he is the one when the council is discussing Jesus. And remember, they sent soldiers out to go capture Jesus. And uh, the soldiers got drawn in and they came back. And they said, well, where's Jesus? They said, well, he says things that are really powerful. <laughs> and, and they're like, ah, you know, we send you guys out. You come back empty handed. And Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And, and the council, th th these 
grumpy guys that are in the, on the council, they start, oh, are you from Galilee too? And they start to insult Nicodemus. So he was pro-Jesus. I mean, they're defending Jesus before the council and then also in his death honoring Jesus. I think that you know, there's a pretty good posture that he has. And to me, again, interpreting this passage, I believe that he has genuinely good motives in going to visit Jesus at night and going to have this dialogue with him that he's about to have. Verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's this 30-year-old carpenter, again, sees the ruckus in the temple, and he sees all these miracles that Jesus is doing. He's got, There's got to be something about this guy. I've just got to get, I've got to get close to him. I've got to figure out what's going on with him. There's something different. And, and it's just attractive to him. Something that's interesting, we're going to talk about the new birth as we get in further into the text here. Uh, three things that Nicodemus says to Jesus or about Jesus in verse two. He says, you're a teacher. He says that you've come from God and God is with you. Now, Interesting, in verse 3, Jesus does not do anything with that statement because he knows that Nicodemus, I mean, he's trying to be polite, sort of genteel in that sense, but he's also flattering Jesus. He's saying, we know that when he says we, he's talking about his contemporaries, talking about the Pharisees. We know that you've come from God. We know, Rabbi, you know, big kahuna, you know, big guy. We know that you've come from God and we know that God is with you. Jesus just blows it off. And I like that. You know, very often when people come to Jesus, have you ever noticed that very often he doesn't do anything with what they've said? He just lets it lay. And I, I always go back to when he says, let your less, yes be yes and your no be no. Anything short of that is of evil. And this, again, Nicodemus is showing his unregenerate heart here and coming to Jesus with some flattering speech and trying to initiate this dialogue with him. And Jesus gets right to the point uh, because the flattery doesn't have any effect. In verse 3, he says, he answers him and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Something that makes me mildly crazy, <laughs> confession, is when I see a religious attitude of, well, I'm good and you're good, and God wants us to be good, and good people just go to heaven, and we're all good. And it's like, no, that's not the point. That's not the gospel. It's not about fixing up my flesh. It's not about making me a better person. This is not a self-help course, guys. It's so often I see the things of God reduced to that. It's as much an error as the Pharisees reducing the law of God to a bunch of rules. It's about a new life. It's about a new creation. It's about saying goodbye to my flesh. It's about dying to self. It's about this new birth that has to take place or I am not going to see, I am not going to understand the things of the kingdom of God. I won't. And we'll see that here. Nicodemus does not get it all the way through until Jesus shifts gears in their dialogue. 
When he says, unless one is born again, you could also read that as, unless one is born from above. You know, I've heard people talk about, you know, in the, the media, loves, they love to pick on Christians. They always find some crackpot, you know, he's got a sandwich board on, or, you know, weird things, you know, and try to run that up the flagpoles. That's what Christianity's like, you know, and they, they'll do that. And it's like, whatever, you know, they can do that if they want. But they'll, they'll talk about those born-again Christians, like, like they're the fringy ones. There's no other kind of Christian. You're either born again or you're not. You, you will, as we read in Ephesians last week, you will die in your sins unless you are born again because you're born spiritually dead and you were dead. Not kind of dead, dead. Remember we talked about that word in Greek? means dead. <laughs> and, and so it's, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mince words here. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point with Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, there's got to be a radical, life-altering, life-changing, complete, not work over, but death to you and a new life for you to have anything to do with God. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Don't even go there with the visuals on that one. I mean, that's a... He's, he's trying to... You've got to give him credit. He's trying to understand. Jesus is saying something. I mean, we, looking from this side, knowing the Bible, seeing God's word, and seeing it open to us, having been born again, at least most of us, if not all of us, we can look at this and go, wow, you know, he's just not getting it. Neither did I. I remember being very put off. And I was a good Mormon kid, but very put off by those religious Christians that were babysitting my kids. It was like, oh, my goodness, they're just, it, it, I was just put off. I don't know what they have. They're just, but I don't want it. Because my flesh, it just, I was just repulsed by the things of God. And I'm just being honest with you. Because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. They're foolishness. They don't make any sense at all. And it's not making any sense to Nicodemus here. But Jesus presses on. He, he says, you know, this rebirth, it, it, it might be possible, but I don't understand how it works, Jesus. And Jesus in verse 5 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now remember, in verse 3, he says you can't see the kingdom of God. In other words, we pray for eyes to see. Jesus says, he who has eyes to see, who has ears to hear, that spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, only comes through regeneration, only comes through the new birth. Nicodemus isn't there yet, so this is not making sense to him. He's rejecting Jesus' testimony, and Jesus busts him on it here in just a moment. He says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are people have varying uh, opinions about this. What does it mean about being born of water and the Spirit? I remember growing up in the Mormon church, they said, oh, it means being water baptized. And I'm like, I read this now with regenerated eyes. <laughs> uh, I read this now and I, and I look at it and I go, there's no possible way it could mean baptism. He's talking about being born again of the Spirit. He's talking about an immaterial thing. He's talking about something that is not a physical birth. 
And so when he says, unless one is born of the water, and I believe simply, believe what you want, there's some different ideas out there about it, but he's talking about physical birth. He's talking about labor. What happens when a woman's in labor? The water breaks. <laughs> and so I think it's pretty easy to deduce. He's talking about unless you're born of the water and the spirit, two births, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So what do you, you know, and I struggled with this for a long time, you guys. Okay, this kingdom of God thing. I see it all over in the New Testament. What is the kingdom of God? You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, he's giving the disciples some pointers on prayer. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's he talking about? Think about it. The language of heaven is love, right? Okay, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how is my love demonstrated? My love is demonstrated through my obedience to him. Not to these endless laws, but through the obedience of faith. And what Paul talks about in the book of Romans, it's a beautiful way that he puts it there because he talks about the obedience that leads to faith or the obedience of faith. Because when I am simply walking in that which I believe to be true, I, it's, a, it's a done deal. I have reckoned that to be so, that Jesus died on that cross for me personally and that when he rose, he rose to give me power to live. This new birth is now available to me through faith. I am crucified with Christ, resurrected to new, newness of life. Water baptism is a symbol of that, but it's not the means towards it. Okay, understand the difference there. It's a very important difference because to add baptism to the salvation experience is to say the cross wasn't enough. Think about it. When I came out of the LDS church, and, I, and because if somebody asked me, are you saved by grace? I'd say, of course. But if they said, well, what else are you saved by? Well, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, by good works, by water baptism. And, and, and again, I don't like to give it a lot of press, but there's a lot of deceitful stuff out there. What I didn't realize in that, well, two things. Number one, that's adding to the finished work of the cross. And you cannot add to the finished work of the cross without committing a blasphemous act. You can't do it. You change the person and the work of Jesus. You change what he came to do. If it wasn't enough and I have to add these things then grace is no longer grace. And my salvation is of no effect. I mean, these are very serious issues doctrinally, guys. And we do well to have our doctrinal hats on right. So when he's outlining, outlining this new birth to Nicodemus, he is very specific about what he can and can't experience in this. You can't come. You can't enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, again, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, then you are demonstrating your love for me. And if you have come to surrender your life to Christ, then what you're doing is you're surrendering your will. And in surrendering your will, you're saying, I want the Father's will, first and foremost, in my life. That is to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's very simple. It's not a physical kingdom. Jesus, before Pilate, he said, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you know, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's not this physical realm. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And in, in, as such, if 
that were so, you wouldn't be standing here in management right now, Pilate. You'd be done. My kingdom, if my people rise up at this moment, they will so overwhelm what's going on here. Again, proving that he went to the cross voluntarily. It was something he signed up for. It was something he talked about throughout his earthly ministry. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My time to take the cup has not yet come. And then there he was, looking squarely at the cross, taking the cup. His hour had come. We've talked about that. We'll go back into that. So he says in verse 6, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, this birth cannot happen through the flesh. This is not a physical thing that I'm talking about. Because in our flesh, we're limited in power, understanding, and ability. We don't have the ability. You literally can't get there from here. It has to be by faith. And then through that new birth, having the Holy Spirit now come into me because I am a cleansed vessel and giving me understanding because the Holy Spirit is now my teacher. And you know, it's, there's so much in the Old Testament that points to this very thing. Religion appeals to my flesh. Religion appealed to those guys, those Pharisees, the scribes, as they're taking apart the law and putting it back together in infinite lists and lists and lists. I mean, talk about being busy for God and not ever going anywhere. talking to somebody the other day we were talking about Matthew 5 the be attitudes I'm said I, I told him I said you know I'm sure glad they're not the do attitudes because the Beatitudes are blessed are those who and he goes down the list and you see a picture of the Christian life it's not do Jesus says abide in me abide in in in, in me and and I will do the work it's a beautiful thing that he does here guys this, this new birth is not something that's a task it's not something that's laborious for us it's because he loves us and he makes salvation so easy. It's so pro profoundly simple that men miss it. This isn't a big, complicated, technical, theological thing that he's going through here. He's saying, you know, Nick, you've got to be born again. Physical birth's not going to do it. You were born spiritually dead. You need to have a new birth. Plain and simple. Can't get there. You can't even see the things I'm talking about unless that happens. Verse 7, he says, uh, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying it's a necessity, Nicodemus. It's not optional. This is an optional stuff. So, so he's been talking about the details of this new birth, and now he gets into the mystery of it. In verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what he's saying, guys, now up until this point, Jesus, remember when he turned the water into wine, it says that, that the people believed in him. Remember in John chapter 2. So that was a miracle producing belief. Now he's talking about belief producing a miracle. He turns it inside out. You can't put him in a box. Now this, you know, remember in, in chapter 2, he said, you know, he didn't entrust himself to man because he knew what was in all men. Because just belief that comes from seeing a miracle is not full-blown faith. 
But when one comes to faith, when one comes to trust, trusting that he is the Son of God, that he did come to do what he did, and that he accomplished the work of our redemption, and now I repent of sin and I release my life to him, this new birth takes place. See, it only comes that way. And so it's faith that produces the miracle. And if you are sitting here this morning and your life belongs to Jesus, you have experienced the miracle of the new birth. You know, when he talks about the wind blowing where it wishes and all of that, he's talking about you can't see it. Now with the other miracles, the signs that he did, the physical ones where he alters the laws of physics because he kind of owns them, those kind of things he could do and people would go ooh and ah because he, he, he's the master of physics. He knows how to calm the sea. It's no big deal for him. It's a big deal for us because we're in this physical body in this physical plane called earth, this, this dimension that we live in. And when he alters that, we just go, whoa, that could only happen one way. You're God. You know what I mean? It's to produce that kind of faith. But here, having come to faith, he says, now you can experience this new birth. This is the kind of miracle that you can't see. It's like the wind. It blows. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, but you know it's there. You can see the effect of it. In the new birth, you'll see the effect of it, Nick, but you won't see it physically because this is a spiritual thing. Something that's important to understand here, and I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, I'm a show-me kind of guy. I like to see evidence. I like, when I look at things, I want to know the nuts and bolts. I want to take it apart, put it back together, maybe three or four times. This is who I am. That I don't understand something sometimes could drive me nuts. I was taking apart little electric motors as a 10-year-old kid because I couldn't figure out how that thing could spin. Why is it when I put a battery to it, it spins? I don't understand that. I didn't understand magnetism and all that stuff. But my point is, is that I like to take it apart. And there are some things when it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to God's economy, you can't take them apart. He's essentially saying, Nicodemus, that you don't understand it doesn't change the fact that it's true. Here's a guy that has devoted his life to understanding the nuts and bolts of the law of God. He has so devoted his life to understanding the intricacies of the law of God to the point of ridiculousness, as we read. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you're not going to get this. You're not going to understand this the way that you understand that. It's like the wind. That you don't understand it doesn't alter the fact that it is absolutely true. And this is a truth that had not come up before. This is the first time when Jesus is saying, you have to have this new birth. You have to have this spiritual miracle take place in your life in order for you to even get what I'm saying. Hebrews 11.1, 1, talking about faith, says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about things not seen. When he relegates this new birth to, in the work of the Spirit being like the wind. So now, I have a chart here that I made up. And I want to talk about the inferior trinity that man is, okay? Now, we know that God, as the superior trinity, is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's not an issue. We're not talking about that here. I'm talking about man being an inferior trinity uh, of body, soul, and spirit. Okay, 
Some people believe it's body and then soul and spirit are the same. That's called the dichotomy. Body, soul, and spirit is a trichotomy. Big words, don't have to worry about it. But basically, in our unregenerate state, before this new birth, the Bible tells us that we are led about by the impulses of our body, that we are body, soul, spirit, that we are led about by the lust, by this nature of Adam that is the dominant nature in my life. Now what happens when we are born again of the Spirit is that there is this flip-flop that God does. Not we, we don't do it, but God does it. Now, so on the right side, you see the regenerated man as opposed to the spiritually dead man on the left. The right side, the, now spirit is the dominant nature or the, the, the character, the nature of Jesus becomes the dominant nature in my life. And so, now, you see there where I have body, it's kind of colored a little gray and a little red on the bottom there. That's because we still have the capacity to choose to walk according to the flesh. And that's a whole different discussion. Stick around, we'll get to it. Not today. But the point is, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we have to reckon, we have to crucify that old man. The, the Bible says mortify the deeds of the flesh. Do you know what mortify means? It means strangle. I mean, it's like, take that thing. And just, I just, you know, I got to get rid of this flesh because it just rears up. And I know what my week looked like and I know when my flesh rears up. Ah, don't look at me like that. You do too. But the point is, we all do. We, we battle. It's what is on the throne of my heart. Is it my flesh, the old nature, that Adamic nature, or is it spirit? Because that's what God has put there. That's what the new birth gives us the entitlement to. Do we take advantage of that? Do we allow him to manifest his life in us to where we now can have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and all the rest? Is this not a indefinite list. It's not a definite list. It's an indefinite list in Galatians. But the point is, this life of spirit that he gives us through the new birth is what the Christian life is. It's, it's, that is the nuts and bolts. And, and don't try to figure it out any deeper because you won't. Just receive the new life. Walk in the newness of life that he guarantees. That's his will. That's his revealed will. That's why I say my prayer for this church is that we reach outward, that we are in a posture of saying, Lord, use us, as Matt said today, use us to reach out to our community. Use us to reach out to those who are lost, to those who are literally dying because they're not going to have this new birth unless they know about Jesus and they commit themselves to that end. It is so important. So we have this inferior trinity on one side and this superior trinity or that, that is the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the, the unregenerate or born spiritually dead and then Titus 3, 3 through 7, we're going to take a look at that real quick. Um, the Apostle Paul writing here, it sounds very much like what we looked at if you were here last week in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, where the Apostle Paul uh, says, for we ourselves were... Also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's that nature of Adam manifesting itself in our lives. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, 
in the person of Jesus you could insert, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth. The washing and regeneration. Regeneration is simply the impartation of life. That as a dead person walking, I didn't get it. I was repulsed by the things of God. And then I came to this place where I saw my own spiritual bankruptcy before God and released my life to him and he moved in. That's why you see such a striking change in so many people that have done business with God. And I'll tell you what, Christian, you've been here for a while, you've been a a, a Christian for a while, blow the dust off of these truths. This isn't new stuff for you, but it's fresh. It should always be fresh because he wants us to be fresh with him. He wants us, this, this walk, to be vibrant and alive. says that he poured in verse 6 out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according according to the hope of eternal life. That's a mouthful and we could teach probably for a month on just that passage in Titus because there is so much there. The point is the Apostle Paul talking to Titus here is outlining the same thing there that Jesus is outlining here. He's talking about the regeneration that takes place as a result of being born again, being born again of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? You know, Jesus is so patient. About that point, I probably would have slapped my forehead. It's like, really? You, You still don't get it? No, he doesn't get it. He's saying, how? I don't understand. I want to know the nuts and bolts. See, he's saying, how can these things be? Tell me how this is, Jesus. I mean, he's being honest, but he's not getting it. And Jesus says to him, he says, in verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? I mean, go back and look. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, you know what? I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. All over the Old Testament, through the prophets, he prophesied of this thing that was going to take place when Messiah came. And they missed it. He's saying, are you really? Seriously, Nicodemus? You're so hung up. And I'm paraphrasing here. You're so hung up on the laws and the rules and all the stuff, all the minutia, that you missed this? I'm not telling you something new. This is something that my word talked about. The volume, the scroll of the book, it's written of me. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak that what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. He's speaking from the standpoint of he and the, the, he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative, but only that which the Father gives me through the agency of the Spirit. So you see the whole Trinity at work here. See, he says, you know, I'm not alone in this. We, see, we speak that which we know and that which we have seen. And he talks about our witness and you don't receive it. Now remember in chapter one, Jesus or John says, he says, to those who received him, them he gave the power to become sons of God. This is how that's worked out. Let's see. He says, I've come. And represent the Father. I'm not here to give you a report about the Father. 
we're the first-hand witness. We are the ones with whom you have to do. This isn't the abstract, Nicodemus. This is the real thing right in front of you. And then Jesus says, you know, he says, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, these things are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually discerned. I'm telling you earthly things and you don't believe that because I've tried to explain this in earthly terms here and you, you don't receive my witness. You don't get it. You don't want to hear it. And he's confronting him lovingly, but directly saying, you know what? How can I go any further? I can't go any further with you, Nicodemus. You don't get it. You reject what I'm saying. What do you want me to do at this point? And Jesus, now, if it was me, a lot of times, you know, it's like, I'm going to throw my hands up in the air and walk off. But Jesus doesn't do that. This is a pivotal point in his interaction with Nicodemus. Uh, in verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. For that person that you desperately want to see born again, this is some really good advice. Jesus shifts now from the method to the action of the Son of Man. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What on earth is he talking about? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 1,500 years before, glad you asked. We're going to go to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. I'm going to look at five verses there, verses 4 through 9. The bronze serpent. Now, Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They're in the middle of that 40 years of wandering around aimlessly. Well, as God led, but still, they were not able to go into the promised land. And here, in Numbers 21, they begin to grumble at Moses and against God. And God judges them for this, and yet he provides a solution. Verse 4 of Numbers 21, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now, I can just picture God from heaven saying, That's enough. When they said, Our soul loathes this worthless bread, he, they're talking about the manna. They're talking about God's miraculous provision that kept them alive in the desert. And they're grumbling and complaining and carrying on and showing no thankfulness, no gratefulness for the things God had done to sustain them. I mean, we're told that during that whole 40 years, the sandals of their shoes didn't even wear out. God was miraculously sustaining these people and they came directly against his provision. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Of course, they're going to come to Moses now. Help! <laughs> we've got some problems here, Mo. They came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents, serpents from us. These snakes are biting us. We're dying. Do something, Moses. 
So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks to it, he'll live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Interesting. This is just a side note. Israel started to worship the pole. I mean, hundreds of years later, under King Hezekiah, he's breaking down all the high places. He is a godly king. And it says in, in, first, in 2 Kings 18 that he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan, which means the bronze thing. <laughs> Give man half a chance, he'll make an idol of it. I'm sorry, that's why Jesus, you know when he healed, he never used the same method twice. Have you ever noticed that? We would have the first and second church of the holy mud spitters if all he did was spit in the mud and make clay to heal people. I mean, we would deify that thing. That's what man does. Again, that's the way of religion. We want to take that thing that God has done and we want to, you know, enshrine it and, and worship it. I mean, I, when I was in Rome, it was sickening. It was like, this is the tomb of Peter. I'm going, he's not been there for a long, long time. And it's like, you know, this is, and it's like, no, they missed it. And I just say that just as a side note, just to be careful because the things of God, we can start to enshrine and pay more attention to the object than the one whose provision it was to deliver these people from their affliction. I want to talk about a few things as we wrap up this morning as far as this goes. The first is Jesus is the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up. In John chapter 9, he heals a blind man and he says, you know who did this? The Son of Man. And he said, where's the Son of Man? He says, he's right in front of you. So Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. The second is Jesus is in the place of the snake and is the source of the rescue from the poison of sin. Jesus, now this is risky. Don't send me mail. In this story, Jesus is the snake. I'll get to explaining that in a minute. Three, Jesus is portrayed as the curse. The snake is the embodiment of the curse. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, beautiful passage there, I love to recite it when we have communion, that he who knew no sin became sin that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And that is a direct quote from the Apostle Paul talking about Jesus, that he became sin. He became the curse. He wore our sin. When it talks about in Ephesians and, and in some other place, I don't remember exactly where at the moment, but he talks about Jesus being our propitiation. Big word, but it's a biblical word. It's only used a couple times. What it means is he absorbs wrath. Okay, to be our propitiate is to absorb the wrath of God for us. And that's when Jesus became the curse. He said, curse is every, the, the man who hangs on a tree in Galatians there. I'm probably not quoting that right, but it's there as well. This is a truth that is woven throughout the New Testament. Jesus becomes sin, that we can become the righteousness of God. He wore our sin. He received the wrath of God for our sin. What Jesus is giving through becoming the curse for us is eternal life. That's the exchange. 
He says, you take my death and I'll give you life. You trust that I died, that I became the curse for you and I'll give you a new birth. Free, no charge. All you got to do is believe it. On that basis, we're not going to get to 316 today. How much does God love us? He so loves us, as John says in verse 16. He so loves you. He so loves me. That he would go to that extent for no other reason than to purchase your soul, having experienced the wrath of God. When he hung on that cross and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sobering. That was the moment when the Father placed our sin on the Son and turned his back on him as he wore our sin, as he became the snake on the pole. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, Moses lifted up the serpent there, but you want to know who lifted up the Son of Man? Won't go into it, but we're told in the Bible that it was the Pharisees themselves. He says, you're not going to believe until you lift up the Son of Man. And he was talking to the, the Jews, the religious leaders of his day. He says, look to the pole and live. That's all you got to do. You know, when we talk about that, remember again in chapter one, it says that we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. To behold him, think about him. He says, you know, as Moses did that back then, so now you must do that here. That's the transaction. He's telling Nicodemus, that's the transaction. Don't worry about how, Nick. Forget about that. But understand why. Understand why. Is to purchase your soul. To those, he gives the right to become the children of God. To, to us, to become sons and daughters. Very expensive for him. No charge for us. Sobering. Now, interesting about this event back uh, in the Old Testament that sat for 1,500 years. It just sat there. Nobody had commentary on it. The scribes, the Pharisees, that was not something that they had anything to say about. It was written then for this point when Jesus with Nicodemus makes the parallel. Interesting. We talk about the prophetic word. Yes, that was a type. That serpent on the pole was a type. It pointed directly to the cross. The people in Israel couldn't have known. They couldn't have known. They would have had no idea what was going on there. But what they did know, and I will submit this to you, brothers and sisters, when I talk about being a light in our community, think about it. There's this snake on a pole in the middle of the camp. It's where we get the caduceus, the, the symbol for medical stuff, for healing. And, and, and the instruction from God is just look to the pole and be healed. Oh, I don't want to hear about that religious stuff. I don't need to look to no pole. I'm alive. Don't you see? 
I'm breathing. I'm alive. But I was bitten. And I looked to the pole, and I'm healed. Oh, I don't want to hear your religious mumbo-jumbo. Don't give me that. How many times have you heard that type of rhetoric from people? But think about it. You were bitten, and you looked to the pole, and you were healed. What kind of a burden does that give you towards the guy right over there that's been bitten, and he's squirming in pain, and you know he's dying? You know he's going to die. See, it's a physical manifestation in the Old Testament of something that's a spiritual manifestation in your and my lives. When we talk about the Great Commission, when we talk about being in a world that is dying, folks, it's just like what Jesus tells Nicodemus. It's like the wind. You don't see it, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We are living in a world of dead men and dead women walking. And we have looked to the pole. And we have been healed. Things have been set right in our lives. We got a new birth out of the deal. Now what kind of a burden should that give me for that person over there that's squirming and dying? And they will die in their sins. The Great Commission is real. Time is short. It's a brand new year. I love that you know, this is a message on New Year's Eve. How relevant is it that we could take a fresh look at this new birth, that which drives our Christian life? Nicodemus didn't quite get it, and we're going to go on with the, the dialogue that he had with Jesus next week. And we'll get into that one verse that's like the most famous in all of the Bible, because we stopped at verse 15. But just some things to chew on in the coming week, guys. You look to the pole. You got what Jesus said would happen. You see, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. It's for dying people. The other thing about this is it's wrath, not poison. That was killing the people. It was God's judgment on the people. It was his anger. We talked about that last week, that we were, by nature, children of wrath. And we were storing up wrath. And the picture there is by faith, simply looking to the pole that his wrath has rolled away. The third thing here is God is choosing to rescue his sinful people with the picture of the curse, the Adamic curse. Remember the snake? There's no mistake that God told Moses, put a snake on a pole. And there's no mistake that Jesus said, you know how that was back there? That thing that nobody's talking about? Moses and the pole and the snake? Look to the pole? That's how it's going to have to be with me, Nick. The most beautiful thing about the whole story is all they had to do was look. That's what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, this is really simple. You're rejecting my testimony. You're totally rejecting it. Because you don't understand it, you're thinking it's not so. Well, I'm telling you, it is so, and there's a very simple solution to where you're at, Nicodemus. And brothers and sisters, a very simple solution to where those people are at that we love, that we care for, that we adore, that are not part of his kingdom yet. Just the encouragement. All you have to do is look. You heard me say before, all you have to do is show up. And that's what he's saying here. 
It's a very simple thing. And it's all because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but live forever. That's where the parallel with the snake on the pole ends because they lived to die another day. And he says, you believe in the Son of Man being lifted up. You may shed this physical body, but your life goes on. You are one heartbeat from heaven at any particular time. Great comfort in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous look at Nicodemus and the, the dialogue that he has with our Lord. And the simplicity with which Jesus deals with him in honest, honesty and truthfulness and yet so graciously as he outlines these things. And we also know that they're there for our instruction. So instruct us, we pray. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to instruct us, to bring to our remembrance the things that you'd have each of us come out of here with today that it wouldn't simply be another Sunday service, but that perhaps, Lord, you're tugging on our heart to draw us deeper, to draw us on, to bring us to new points of obedience, to bring us to new points of responding to your love. Lord, I pray you'd find a people that are eager to embrace that and that are eager to embrace you in wonderful new ways. We thank you, Lord, for the new birth and thank you, Lord, for the way that you are so long-suffering with each of us. We pray, Father, now that you would work in us that you would work in us and use us, Lord, in our families, and our community to draw people unto you for your glory. We thank you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.